Hey, the book of Esther chapter, where shall we start? How about chapter four? It's on page 741. Chapter 4, verse 12, Mordecai told Esther what Esther, they told Mordecai what Esther had said in verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether or not. Maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Father, would you give us insight into your words uh, that it would just be a lamp to our feet and a light as we just breathe in your spirit and your presence this morning. That This isn't an academic exercise, but a, but a spirit of you invading us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you guys to name famous Isaacs of history... You'd probably name Isaac, you know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Isaac Newton. Perhaps am I missing any famous Isaacs? Isaac Hayes, <laughs> sports guys. I'm assuming Isaac Asimov. So you got the, the science guy, the football guy. Is it football or basketball? Oh, guitar player. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> if anything I should know, it'd be that, right? I just assumed you were going college football on me. Um, you probably wouldn't name Isaac Milner, though, right, in that list of famous Isaacs. And I would say that if you didn't, that's okay, because nobody really would, except, I believe, God. Because Isaac Milner served actually in the same exact role at Cambridge uh, as Isaac Newton did. He served as the Lucasian professor there, which sounds pretty good on paper, doesn't it? I don't know if they had business cards in those days, but it would sound really like a good ring, and it made him pretty famous and pretty influential at his time uh, in the late 1700s. And Isaac Milner, uh, while he may not have been as famous as Newton, I'm going to tell you why I believe right now that he was more influential than any of the Isaacs we just named in changing the course of, of history as we know it. As destiny would have it, as God's providence would have it, Isaac Milner had bumped into his friend William in Scarborough in England. William had offered him this uh, random opportunity, put yourself in this position. Hey, bro, do you want to go on a 1,200-mile journey on a horse and carriage to the French Alps? Horse and carriage, you lost me at horse and carriage for 1,200 miles. But this, if you're going to go to the French Alps, you know, maybe there's no better way to do that. And he says to Isaac Milner, hey, I, this, this opportunity, I was going to go with my mom. My mom has been ill. This is a true story. My mom has been ill. Uh, we're taking her, a cousin, and me. And as it turns out, there's only room for two in a coach, so I need a third, a fourth to go, you know, to make ours like golf. I need a fourth to make the round. So he's looking for somebody, and he chooses his friend who's a doctor in York. And as it turns out, he backed out on him. Again, I think God's providence was moving, and his hands were at work. Because once the doctor backed out, William was like thinking, I got to spend 1,200 miles, 2,400 round trip. And if any of you have been on a flight, a long flight across the ocean, particularly with a, with a whack job next to you, like you, you guys believe in aliens or I mean, like that kind of, you know, the flight is off to a bad start. And so he's saying, I don't want to spend 1,200 miles with a crazy person. 
And so he's trying, he's at the last minute, he's got to figure it out. And so he actually floats this by Isaac Milner, who was famous, who was influential, who was incredibly wise and known throughout that time. Because he'd be a great conversation piece. He'd have a great conversation because William himself was a young politician. He himself was pretty famous and influential. And so he thought, man, we'll have a great spirited conversation on this. And so they, they, they lead out. You know, Milner had known William when he was younger. Milner was the brother of the math dean at the school that he was at. And so they actually were familiar with each other. And at the weeks of the journey, the one thing that probably William hoped more than anything that Milner wouldn't do was talk about what politics and religion, right? And so what is the first thing that Milner wants to talk about is, is God in Jesus. You see, in those days, there was a revival underway that John Wesley was credited with starting. And in those days, it was really known as like for the low class, for the blue collar, for those that just, ugh. it wasn't for the upper crust where William found himself. And so he figured, I'm getting a guy from Cambridge. But as it turns out, the guy from Cambridge was a closet Methodist. He had encountered the real and living God. And so now for 1,200 miles one way, Isaac Milner has William at his disposal. Now, William had encountered Jesus as a young man. At about the age of 12 or 13, there was a guy in their life named John who had talked about Jesus, and he had actually given his life to Christ at that young age. And his parents were kind of worried about how this was going to mess up William's future in the secular religious environment of 1700s England. So they actually moved William away, got him separated from John. So as Milner, now here it is probably 15, 20 years later, Milner's sitting on this coach talking about this real living God, and you can imagine that William is thinking, man, I remember that God, but I turned my back on him. But here's this guy who is smart, who's intelligent, who is an influential throughout the world, telling me about the real living God. And it was on that journey that a guy named William Wilberforce would give his life to Jesus. And it was on that journey that William Wilberforce would begin to be forced to deal with, how can I be a dirty, trashy politician and still be a Christ follower? And even struggle with the idea of when I get back, can I still be a politician and, and love Jesus? And in our society, I don't know the answer to that. But <laughs> as it turns out, this guy, John, that he had known at a younger age, he, re, he reacquainted himself with John because John, by that point, had become a little more famous in their society. He was a guy named John Newton. John Newton, who we know is the guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace. John Newton, who himself was a former slave trader, who through the guilt and the shame of all that turned his back on the world and gave his life to Christ. And so at 12 years old, John Newton led William to Christ. And now here he is in his later 20s, and John is in, probably in his early 50s, 60s, is again getting a chance to influence young William and saying, oh yeah, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it was John Newton who influenced him to put an end to the scourge of slavery itself in Great Britain. Don't tell me that influence isn't valuable. Because Isaac Milner might not have a place in the halls of faith or in Hebrews 11, but I promise you on the other side in the kingdom that the guy that led William Wilberforce back to Christ is as influential as ever. That's why we're talking about influence at Conduit. We've talked about being a steward of what God has given us. And it's so easy. We, we don't talk about being a steward of his time, our time that he's given us, his time that he's given us. A steward of the talents, the skills, and we're actually going to talk about that next week. 
a steward of the finances of our treasure that he's given us. But we would be remiss if we actually skipped the one thing that I think is more valuable than treasure. We actually talked about last week. Remember I introduced you to the top earning YouTube stars of last year? Combined, the top 10 made $54 million. And for the first time in history, influence was not, or for the first time in our history, modern history, they're not getting paid for their talent. They're getting paid for their influence. Because those little YouTube stars are getting paid money to get you and I or our kids to go buy stuff. Corporations are paying them, not because they can sing, but because they can influence. Influence is valuable financially, but I think if you use it and just stick with money that you've cheapened it, that our influence is way worth more than that, worth way more than gold. And as I thought about what it is where we've come with our journey and just discussing influence, if you remember last week we said, what was influence? It's not power. I can make my kid go stand in a corner, and the older they get, it's a little harder, right, Kelly? I mean, once they're in your 20s, it's hard to get them to stand in a corner. But I can make them stand in a corner, but that doesn't necessarily change the way they're thinking, which ultimately changed their behavior. Remember, influence is a long-term play. Power is a short-term grab. And when we look at the book of Esther, which we've been spending time in, we realize that Esther was offered power up to half the kingdom wealth up to half of everything. She turned it down and instead took the influence that God offered her. Influence is the ability to not change the way someone acts. It's the way we change the way that someone thinks. And what does the Bible say about when we change the way we think? We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. I can change my behavior today, but if I don't change the way I'm thinking, then I'm exact, I'll behave the same way tomorrow. And what influence is in our life and all of us have a level of it in all of our lives, is the ability to influence someone else. And what did we look at last week? Just a really quick review was what are the purposes of influence that we saw in Esther's story? Number one was that she used it to rebuild the temple. Not her temple, someone else went and did it. She didn't swing a single hammer, but she influenced an entire nation to go rebuild the temple. And you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm influencing someone else, whether I'm influencing a child, influencing my own child, influencing you, what I'm really influencing, I can't change you. I can just influence you to allow your thinking to be changed so that your lives can be transformed by the renewing of your mind with the word of God. Esther used her influence to help others rebuild their temple. She also used it to speak up for those who have no voice. You can use your influence to make money. I don't think there's anything sinful about that. But at the end of your life, if that's the only thing you did with it, feel like you'll feel a little empty. But if you use your influence, whatever influence it is, even parents over your own children, just to speak on behalf of those who have no voice to your own children, to pull that out of them in their own hearts, that's a great use of influence. In Matthew 25, when Jesus says, did you visit me while I was in prison? Speaking of the least of these brothers of mine, he uses the word erkomai, visit in Greek, which is the word to bring before the public. When you speak on behalf of those who are being persecuted and oppressed and who are marginalized, when you speak up on behalf of the unborn in our country, those babies, 59 million, we speak up on behalf of them. We are urkomying them. We are visiting them. We are bringing them before the public. We are using our influence for a God-ordained purpose. We have a chance to what Esther did. She brought, uh, she brought it, uh, her influence before the heathen nations. We can pray that our influence be increased. I pray that our influence at Conduit is increased so that we can preach Jesus here and around the world to other nations. That's what Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians 10 
verse 13 and 16. He said, I want to pray that not only will I get to preach Jesus here, but that we'll preach it around the world. Esther brought the influence of Hearst, not just to her people, but to King Artaxerxes and the world of the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. She brought her influence, not just to the Jewish people, but around the world. And she, number four, used her influence to speak into and change the culture that she was living in. It's our opportunity now to use our influence, not just by what we say, but how we live. One of the greatest ways that we can influence a conversation on marriage in our culture is fight for our own marriages. To, to, to live in front of our own children as husband and wife. I had this conversation with my kids the other day. We were talking about, well, what if I don't want to get married? And we're driving on the road. I'm like, well, come on, don't you want to be awesome? Like your mom and I, like, aren't we awesome? But anytime you've come to a point as a marriage, and, and I know some of us, there's, we have different stories, but for those of you that have come to that point where I was going to give up, and you fought through, and you, 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 you literally are influencing your children to say that it's worth it. I'm showing them by not yelling and screaming at my wife in front of them. I'm influencing them. I'm not in front of them. I don't yell and scream at you at all, do I? The, the dog, on the other hand, I'll give some yelling to. But we don't yell at it because I'm not inf- I don't want to influence my children that way. We can influence our culture not just by marching on Washington, but we can influence by marching into our own living rooms and being Jesus to our spouses and to each other. Those are four things you could probably think of more, but those are four things that I think that we all could do with the influence given in front of us to influence and change the world around us and to be a good steward of the influence that he gave us. But if you look at Esther's life, what what is influence? It's the ability to change and to motivate someone to change the way they're thinking. What do we use it for? Those four things, but where does it come from? And that's what I want to talk about today. I see three things in Esther's story. Again, you probably can think of more. You probably, the spirit might speak to you. And if he does, by the way, tune me out and write it down. See what the Lord would say to you this morning. Don't let me get in the way of that. But I can see three things in Esther's story of way that she was using influence and where it came from that I think it resonated with me. Maybe it'll resonate with you. The first one I see is that she got influence from her profession, from her job. What was her job? She was queen. Now remember, if you weren't here, you don't, may not know this, but queen, in, to her, this was a, a pagan culture. Queen wasn't like in Narnia with power and horses and stuff. Queen was more like a token thing. She was like the hottest of the hot girls. Like they, they rolled her into like 600 women and she, you know, it was like a reality show, The Bachelor, before there ever was one. She had no power. <laughs> she, she couldn't even go to her, the king without being threat of being dying, without getting dead. She had no power at all. So queen meant more of like a figurehead, but there were jobs and there were responsibilities in her queen gig. And one of them was, you got to have the kings back. And if you look in chapter 2, verse 19, you see a little story unfolding that she's now been put as queen and she catches wind of a plot to kill the king. And Esther had not made known, in verse 20, her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. They didn't even know she was Jewish. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she'd brought up by him. But in those days, verse 20, when Mordecai, who was her uncle, who influenced her into the kingdom, he was an influencer of an influencer. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate in Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. Bad job, by the way. Don't want to be picked to be the eunuch. 
who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And so the guy who influences influencers told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Esther did a great job of protecting the king. She was good at what she did. It was how she kept winning favor and influence. Was she kept doing really good at it. She was good at leading the other women in the harem. I mean, it was like God put her there for some reason, but her profession allowed her to earn the influence of those around her. The story that I just shared with you, Isaac Milner, the reason that he had the ear of, uh, of William Wilberforce was that he had earned the respect because he was really good at his job. In our world, in our day-to-day lives, we can earn respect By the way, respect is the currency with which you purchase influence. Respect is earned, it's not given. And respect is the currency with which you can gain influence. When you, I was talking to my daughter on the way to work yesterday at at the Culver's. That's not gonna be good for me, by the way. The discount there is not gonna be helpful. But on the way there, I was telling her something that somebody told me when I was 19 years old and I was a waiter. And boss, Jill Dietz, still a friend of our family, told me, you know, Darren, as a waiter, you can feel like you're given 150%. If you, during the day, I'm given 150%, you're probably barely given enough that everybody else thinks you're doing enough in pulling your weight around here. I've never forgotten that. I taught my daughter that. Because one of the ways that she gets influence right now is she does a really good job. She was so excited she got butter bucks. Butter bucks is what you get at Culver's if you did a really good job that day and some customers give you good reviews. They'll give you butter bucks to go buy their food. So she, was, she had gained influence and we had a manager tell us, brag on her, she's not even here. I should have did this first service. Had a great, she's back there influencing our children. She's leading. Anyway, the manager was like, oh, she's so great. She's so awesome. She's, we just love her here. She's earning respect because not because she's so sweet and cute, even though she is, but because she works really hard. They call her the table cleaning ninja. Because someone leaves and she's just in there swooping it in. You guys, you can gain respect of those around you by working really hard at what you do. As believers in Christ, whether I am crunching numbers on a 10 key, whether I am playing guitar, I don't know, Ethan Reno, he's right there. Ethan's playing really great, but you know why Ethan's playing great? Not because he's getting lessons, but because he's working his butt off. Sorry, don't say that word, bad influence. Working his rear end off, playing every day. He's, he's practicing. When you go out on tour in my former life, the bands that other, every other bands wanted to see, like you see, there's some bands would play and all the other bands would gather around the side of the stage to watch them. I used to manage one of them. They were called Disciple, just hard rock from Marvel, Tennessee, but all the musicians would want to watch him because their guitar player was so amazing. His name is Brad Noah, and you know what Brad did all day long? He practiced all day long, and you know why? Because practice is not an interruption of your work. It is your work. When you get on stage, that's just everything you did before is now paying off at that point. As a communicator, it wasn't, you know, too long ago when I finally realized, I told Jason this, that you know, the Lord kind of spoke to me and said, hey, this pastor thing, it's not an interruption of your work. Like, it is your work. And if I'm going to be communicating, you guys are going to give your time to drive away on a Sunday morning when you could be playing golf or sitting in a, one of those churches with the cup holders. You, there's a lot of great things you could be doing. But if you're going to come here, what you deserve from me is to give the best I've got on that day. 
So the past couple of years, I've been working on it as a communicator. I mean, look, the Lord can speak through a donkey. So it's not that, you know, the Holy Spirit can do all kinds of powerful stuff, but I wanted to work on it to say that I want the Spirit to go, but I want to absolutely do the best that I know to do to work on my skill and my craft as a communicator. And I would say to you guys, I would encourage you to do the same. Whether it's a teacher, whether you're an accountant, if you're a waiter, if you're a waitress, if if you're working at Sonic, whatever God has for you, work hard at that. Better yourself at what you do. And as you do that, what does Matthew 25 say? That he who is faithful with little will be given much. Your profession is a place where you get influence and you can earn more influence. And should we ask for more influence? Well, that's what Paul said. I pray that I get more influence. Be a good steward of what you already have and God will give you more. So it's not just from the profession, but from Esther's position. The verse that I opened up with in chapter four and verse 19. And who knows, Esther, maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God plucked her out. She was probably confused, like minding her own business, hanging out with Uncle Mordecai, the only family she'd ever known. Esther was an orphan. Her parents had died. So this safety, this security that she probably embraced and looked and held on to was yanked away, and she was placed in the insecurity of hundreds of women for a reality show that makes The Bachelor look like, you know, tame. How confusing would that have been unless that what she, and maybe she didn't know it at the time. I bet she didn't, probably didn't know it till much, much later, that God plucked her out of that and put her into that position for such a time as this. He changed her geography so that he could rewrite her biography because what he wanted to do was take this girl who was an orphan who everybody else looked over, pull her out of this place and put her in another place so that she could have an influence. On our story about Isaac Milner, I mean, here's a guy that changed his position 1,200 miles on a horse and carriage through the French Alps. God plucked him out of there, put him into, I don't even know if somebody offered me that. Hey, what, you know, could you imagine, Shannon, hey, I'm going to be gone for like the next three months because I'm going to the French Alps with my buddy Willie. Like, that's a hard conversation to have at home. But God plucked him out of there and put him in a position right next to William and his influence of the influencer would end slavery as the world knew it in Great Britain. Abraham Lincoln would pull upon the influence of Wilbur, 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 Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, to change slavery in America. And it started with a guy named Isaac Milner, who you've never heard of, changing his position. And there's one other thing that I think that it's one we don't like to talk about. But God doesn't just use our profession. He doesn't just use our position to earn influence and to gain influence, but he uses our pain. Esther's pain earned her influence. Because if you go with me to chapter 7 of Esther, it's her chance to speak to the king now and speak on behalf of her people. She has no idea whether she's going to live or die. And she actually says, if I die, I die. That was her gig, and and she meant it. But as she gets before the king in chapter 7, verse 4, she says, we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, she said, if it was just slaves, I wouldn't have even bothered you with this. But it's not that, because we're, we're about to be killed, and that's why I'm bringing this up to you. But think about it. 
king, just how many years before, had been in the same position she was in. Someone whose life had been in danger. Someone who they were looking to murder. Someone who lived in fear and maybe even paranoia because people wanted to kill him. The pain that she felt of the fear of being killed, he would suddenly recognize and say, oh, I get that. I feel that pain. That, it speaks to me. I could walk into a room, of a, of a, and I have before. I've walked into a room with a parent who's lost a child. And I can speak to them. One of the things I've learned is it's not what you say, it's actually what you don't say in a situation like that. It's not, they won't remember a word I say anyway, it's that I was there. But you know who can speak to someone who's lost a child? Say the same exact words that I've said, and it would mean more, and it would have more influence at someone who's lost a child. Because in the same pain that they felt, the other person, it resonates. And I say that to you because all of us have got our stories. We've done great things and we've done dumb things. We've caused pain in other people's lives. We've caused pain in our lives. But Paul promises us, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I believe, he says that from the, in the same way that you have been ministered hope, you now can minister to others in that same way. And what he was saying was that Esther was able to communicate and influence King uh, Asherus, because she had felt the pain and the fear of losing someone. He had felt the pain of being murdered, and he had felt that fear of as well. And so they, they resonated. You can have that same influence on someone else out of your pain, out of your story. It's interesting that Wilberforce would go on and abolish slavery, isn't it? A highfalutin, Cambridge-educated, dirty politician in England. How could he have really been understood and even thought in his mind? Because the rest of the politicians, none of them thought about it. But when he was 13, he met the guy, John Newton. And he saw the look of the shame and the guilt and the pain that Newton had caused. He saw the reason that a song like Amazing Grace would last throughout the ages in the eyes of John Newton. And out of John Newton's pain, he influenced William Wilberforce, and Wilberforce would go on and know that that was pain that he needed to put a stop to. The influence of Isaac Milner and the influence of John Newton came together in a confluence of influence and changed the history of the world. You know, I look at a room like this, and I know that just by being here that there's pain of maybe someone who's gone through and had an abortion. We have a Bible study that starts this Wednesday, actually, led by Lynn Simpson, who so courageously and so bravely talked about in the late 70s when she herself had an abortion and how she hid that for decades. But God moved into her heart, and now Lynn is loving on others because in a world where 30% of Women, uh, some estimates have had abortions. Let me tell you what, in this room, there's some of you this morning that that's your story. And just like John Newton, God has grace for you. And Lynn Simpson is using her influence in a way that I could never do it because I haven't had that pain. I don't know that one. There's pain that I know that I can minister in, but that's not it. There are those that work in the addiction ministry and helping those who are in addiction. You know who really does a great job with those who are in addiction? Those who have battled addiction. Place of Hope was founded by a guy named Mike Coop, a good friend of mine. I've been on the board there for a long time now. 
Mike was a straight-up 150% government-certified, USDA-approved drunk. And God rescued him 25 years ago. And Mike now, Satan overplayed his hand in Mike's life. Because now today, hundreds, if not thousands of people, God works through even the junk of Mike's life. And here it is. And now God still uses it to bring people freedom. And I say that to you today, that God wants to use your profession. He wants to use your position. He wants to use your pain. He's not going to waste any of that stuff. And you might say, yeah, but I don't know. I, I, it's, I don't have that. I'm not qualified. I'm not. Actually, if you're saying that right now, you remind me of somebody that I've heard of before. His name is Moses. I don't know if you remember Moses, but in Exodus chapter 4, God had picked Moses and said, I want you to be the guy to deliver my people. Moses was a shepherd, okay, for 40 years was a shepherd. And in that culture, the Jewish people especially, they would look at shepherds with a sense of gross. And having raised sheep, I actually kind of get that now. Um, but Moses, for 40 years on the backside of the desert, had been leading sheep and God saying, I want you to be that guy. And Moses says, who am I? They're not going to believe me. I'm just a guy. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just, just me. And maybe that's you this morning. It's just me. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an accountant. I'm, I don't, it's just me. I, I'm I'm a mom. I stay at home. What am I going to do? I work at a grocery store. That is not an unusual argument. And God, it's not the first time he heard it. And what did he say to Moses that day? He didn't say, suck it up, buttercup. Instead, he said, hey, Moses, what's in your hand? He didn't even argue with him. He said, what's in your hand, Moses? And what was in Moses' hand was a staff. The staff that he used as a shepherd to lead sheep all around the backside of a desert. A staff that would have represented his profession as a shepherd. It would have represented his position where he was located in the desert, far away from Egypt. And it would have represented his pain because for 40 years, he must have thought God forgot about him. 40 years early, he tried to liberate his people and he got beat up and chased out of town. 40 years later, it's like, God, seriously, I can't even talk good. That was bad grammar, wasn't it? The irony was not lost on me either. <laughs> but he said, what's in your hand, Moses? Your pain, your profession, your position. I can actually use that. What did he mean by that? <laughs> His staff, he's a shepherd. I need you to lead millions of people through a desert who've never been here before. You know this place like the back of your hand. You know every shortcut. You know what to look out for. You know where the water is. More importantly, you know where it ain't. I want you to do it. What's in your hand? He told him to throw his staff down on the ground. And what happened when he threw it down? It turned into a snake, into a serpent. Maybe a picture for us that when I'm holding my position, my profession, and my pain as my own thing, and I'm holding it out from God, that what the reality of it is it's just dead. It's just a snake. It's just sin until I throw it down and offer it to God. And what did he tell Moses to do? Pick up the snake. And kids, you know this. If you're going to pick up a snake, where do you not pick it up by? The tail. God told him, pick it up by the tail. And he did. Grabbed it by the tail, picked it up, and it no longer was Moses' staff. It was now the rod of God. Your pain, your purpose, your position. All, when you lay it down and before him, you pick it back up again by the tail and it's no longer 
yours. It's his, and he can do great things with it. When God told Moses, write this down later. Take your hand, write this down. Moses could. Three million people were probably illiterate, but Moses spent the first 40 years of his life being raised in the culture that invented papyrus, invented written language, perfected it. Write this down, Moses. He could. God's preparation of Moses began 40 years before he even became a shepherd. And he used his purpose. He used all of that to then rescue the people of Israel that Moses could have that kind of influence. And I know that some of us this morning are like, well, that's great, Darren, because you keep talking about these people that are like huge world-changing people. I don't have much influence at all. I just, I can influence my kids. I don't really, I don't know much. I'm just a mom. I'm, I'm just a dad. I'm working my shift for the city. I, not the first time that argument's been made either. Jesus told us about that argument in Matthew 25. He told a parable of a certain man that would leave a country and he was going to leave each of these servants with money, with talents. And it says to one he gave five talents, to one he gave two talents, and to one he gave one talent. And it said he's going to come back and he's going to settle accounts and see what they did with that. Now in our world we say talent and we think what? Singing, playing, magic, but talent in their culture wasn't even money. It was just it was a measurement of weight. A talent was 75 pounds, give or take, for us. 75 pounds of gold. And when he came back, the one that had five, he said, oh, man, you've doubled it. How awesome. Enter into joy and unspeakable. And said to the one that two, man, he doubled it too. But the one who had one, the one who said, I don't know, I got nothing really to give. I'm so scared of being rejected, of failing. I'm just going to bury this and hope for the best. And he pulled up the muddy talent and this master, like, could you, could you just put it in the bank and earned a little bit of interest for me? And I think about that and realize he, he didn't have much, he thought. He only didn't have much when he compared it to the other two, by the way. Because in his hand, if you look at knaves, vines, and several other topical studies and theologians, they would say, think about this, one talent equal 20 years of salary for this guy. In the kingdom of God, you're not much is a lot. In the kingdom of God, my little one talent is a lot. You think, oh, I can't play guitar, I can't sing. We got enough of that. Plenty of five-talent people. What we need are the one-talent's those of us like me, the one talent people, to lean forward and to use your one talent. I don't know, maybe in our world right now is the future William Wilberforce of America who's waiting for your influence from your pain and your position and your profession to speak into their life just like John Newton did. Maybe your influence is the influence we're waiting on right now what Becca was talking about in first service, the K through five, you're not back there babysitting. You're back there influencing world changers. We want to plant the seeds of the word in them. Influence. Jesus didn't talk about us as like the sales, like I'm trying to close a deal with somebody in the kingdom. He spoke of the word as a seed being planted in them. You don't have to go close the deal. You just go sow some seeds into the hearts of our children. And maybe that's a place for you to start this morning. 
I know in all of our lives, we can all start with our own families, with our own spouses, with our own children, with our own lives. Teenagers, if you're 15, guess what? who's looking at you today in the hallway? Five-year-olds, 10-year-olds. They're looking to you and saying, what are you doing and saying? How are you acting? You have influence right now. Don't squander it. Be a great influence for those. Kids in your 20s that are just trying to figure out, you know, how do I do this? How do I take care of babies? I don't know. You have influence on the teenagers right now. They're looking to you. Fight for your marriage, young couples. You have teenagers watching you right now. Fight for it. Those of us in our 30s and 40s, man, we got some 20-somethings that really need us to get our crap together and be a good influence. Kids, that's a bad influence. Don't say that word. Sometimes I forget we're broadcasting. But I want you to know, for you... I know this because I'm around this a lot. There are a lot of us, by the time you get to your 40s, you've been married 15 years, and I'm just done. I'm not in love with you anymore. I'm not. Fight for your marriage because you're telling a story to 20-somethings that it's worth it. I talked to Ron and Connie Schweitzer earlier today. They're going to be celebrating their 50th anniversary. Right? Put that, amazing. How many times you think over 50 years they were ready to call it quits? And they didn't because they, were, they fought for it. I'm telling you, it's worth it to fight for your marriage because you're telling a story of influence. You want to change the culture of marriage in our country? Save Twitter and go to your own marriage and fight for your own marriage and tell the love story to your children that it's worth it. And those of you that maybe you blew it and you're on the other side of a huge mistake right now and maybe your marriage didn't survive and you're remarried, you get to tell the love story of Jesus' redemption and forgiveness in a way that only a guy like John Newton could sing of slavery in Amazing Grace and the, the, this, the redemption. You can tell a story of redemption as well. All I know is this. We've all been given redemption, and we're all going to get a chance one day to stand in front of our loving Father and give an account for it. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't share this, but at the end of that passage in Acts 25, verse 14 through like 28 or something, The master actually says to the one who had one, away from me, you servant, and go to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you don't agree with me, I'm okay with that, by the way. But I, I happen to believe that when Jesus said that I have you safe in my hand, no one can pluck you out, that once you've been saved, that you're okay, you're safe. No one's gonna pluck you away from that. That's my belief. And a lot of people would say, ah, but look, that proves it right there because this was a servant of the king. He wouldn't give a gift. So that guy was clearly someone who was saved. And here he is going to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I was reminded this morning of another guy that went to a place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember Lazarus? The rich man when he died and says that they took him to watch and to look at the place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he saw his master who said, if you can't save me, go back and save others. It was too late. But I wonder if the place of that moment of the weeping and gnashing of teeth, if you're Lazarus, if you're you or I, is a moment where I get to look at the opportunity that I squandered. The Bible doesn't say there won't be tears in heaven. It just says it wipe them away. And I can't think of anything worth crying over more than opportunities that I, could have, that I squandered, time that I wasted. What if Isaac Milner never got on that horse coach You know what I believe? I believe just like Esther. What did Mordecai say? I'll still save them. God will still figure this out. But you 
and your family will perish. You won't get to enjoy that place in history. I think that 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of a chance when we all stand in front of our master, and it speaks of this thing that will be burning. All the works that I did, all the time that I wasted, the stuff, it burns away. It says you'll still be saved, but just by fire. And I know this is a heavy thought, but for those of us who get to put a flag in the ground and say, from here on out, I'm investing, and I'm going to steward my time, my treasure, my talents, and my influence well that there may be some tears that will wipe away, but there'll be fewer of them because we won't be wasting the influence anymore. That's my prayer. It's for me, for you. That you'll use your influence well, not just as parents. That's a huge place. And if it's the place God puts you, use your one talent and invest it well. It's worth a lifetime of salary in eternity. If your influence is in your workplace, I love what Jason Cruz does. It's so funny to me because he took a hobby, duck hunting, and made it a ministry. What's in your hand? His hand was a 12-gauge. Worked out well. What's in your hand today? Use it for the kingdom of influence. And for those of you that don't even know what that is right now, maybe even plucked out of one position and you're put in another, I don't know how many years it was that Esther didn't know, but I bet it was a lot, and you're okay too be waiting for why the God that gave you the, like the place of the big influence in your life. And in the meantime, while you're waiting, use the influence you have right in front of you. Even if you feel like I'm just a one-talent guy, I'm just a one-talent gal, the kingdom says that's worth a lifetime. Would you stand with me? I'm looking at a room full of Isaac Milner's. Maybe some William Wilberforce is in here. I believe more than ever in our country, we are at a William Wilberforce moment. We need men and women to rise up and to speak into this culture. Wilberforce, by the way, changed it from the inside, and maybe that's what God is calling some of us to do from inside their government. Not to fight for my agenda or yours, but for Jesus' agenda. Knowing that even in our culture that we still need Jesus Lord, I pray that uh, all of us will find that place of influence. That I'm not going to wait till I got my five talents that, to double it, but what, what I have right in front of me right now, Lord, would I use that as a tool in your hands to, to steward it well? And I pray, Lord, that I know there are some in this room right now that you're tapping on the shoulder and you're saying, I'm about to pluck you out and move you to a different position. Pray for the courage and the wisdom to follow your voice. Whatever it costs, if we perish, we perish. And I ask, Lord, that all of us will get to stand. We know we're going to stand in front of you and forgiven and righteous, but I want also for us to stand there from the oldest to the youngest one day to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into joy. And as a church, God, individually and corporately, I ask for you to multiply our influence. Pray that we'll steward it well, what you've given us. You've given us little. We steward it well and ask just like Paul did to increase our influence here and around the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.